Now, we're all following someone, and someone's probably following us. Uh, I remember when I was about seven or eight years old, we went and visited some relatives, and I found myself in the bathroom, and I opened up the cabinet, and I saw some shaving cream, and I thought, you know, I'm eight, I'm Maltese, I'm probably going to shave fairly soon. So I thought I might do some practice. So I got the shaving cream, put it on my face. I got the shaver, the old-fashioned ones. I took the blade out, because I'm not stupid, and, uh, and I started pretending to shave. And I thought I did a pretty good job. I cleaned up everything, put the blade back in the shaver, put it back. There was no evidence that I had done my deed. And I returned back to the kitchen table with my family and the people we were visiting. About 10 minutes later, my sister, who happened to be in the same room as I, came out with blood streaming out of the side of her face. She had, without me knowing, followed me in everything I had done, except for the bit about taking the blade out of the shaver. And to this day, that little scar on the side of her lip is a reminder to me that we're always following someone and someone's always following us. The question is, who are you following? It usually starts off uh, when you're a child that you, you follow your mum and dad. At six, they know everything. By the time you get to 16, they know nothing. <laughs> and then comes the older brother or sister, maybe an older cousin. And then after that, there's usually some group of friends who look really cool whose group you want to be in and who sort of sets the trends. Along the way, you develop some idol or obsession about some sporting hero or uh, music icon or film act actor or actress. Always looking to someone. And then, and then when you get a bit older, you're looking for that expert who seems to know much more than you do. And you, you, know, you read what they write, you listen to their podcast every week, always because they, they just seem to have all the answers. But sure enough, you know, as time goes on, you, you discover the more you get to know them, yeah, they're usually not as impressive as they first appeared. I, I remember reading a book once, and a guy from England said he finally got to meet his cricketing hero, and he spent a lot of time with him. And then he said, the more I got to know him, the more disappointing I became. <laughs> and that's pretty much true of most people except with Jesus. Jesus, the more you get to know him, the more you want to follow him, the more he impresses you. We see Jesus in this passage walking along the Sea of Galilee. Soon he'll be walking on the Sea of Galilee, but for now it, it's walking along. And in chapter 4, verse 17, we read, he repeats essentially what John the Baptist has been saying. Repent. Why don't you say it with me? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He's picking up where John the Baptist left off after he got arrested. Uh, those who followed John the prophet now are following Jesus. And that public call to repent now becomes a personal call to follow Jesus. In verse 19, we read those simple words. What does he say? Come, follow me, Jesus said. Come, follow me. And I want to ponder these simple words just for a moment with us. Firstly, you notice it's a very personal call to follow Jesus. He's not getting you to follow a religion or come to church for an hour a week. He's actually saying, come, follow me. It's an invitation. It's a command. It's a, it's a call to enter into a person-to-person -person relationship with Jesus and a relationship on his terms. Because we follow him, he doesn't follow us. Notice what he says a little bit later. Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and 
I'll give you rest. Come to me. See how personal it is? That Christianity is a personal relationship with Jesus on his terms. I wonder when you share your faith, are you simply telling ideas or are they hearing that you're in that personal relationship? The thing that got me when I was talking to a friend of mine who'd become a follower of Jesus after being an atheist, even though I was a strong believer in God, I knew she had something I didn't have. And what was it? She had a personal relationship with Jesus. And it was clear the way she spoke about Jesus. He wasn't simply this, this historical figure. He was alive and real to her. And I wanted what she had. Secondly, it's a call... From God's king. It's not like Jesus is some insecure person who's got control issues. Always remember, anyone who's trying to control you, chances are they are insecure. But that's not Jesus. He doesn't have to try to be in control. He is in control. That one who's walking on the, uh, uh, along the Sea of Galilee, he's behaving like God. Why? Because he is God. The kingdom of heaven has come near and he's the king. You know, we follow Jesus for many reasons. He's already been revealed as the sinless son of God. He's the suffering servant of the Lord. He's the Davidic king whose kingdom will never end. But in chapter 1, he is described as Emmanuel, which means God with us. The man who walked by the Sea of Galilee, I'll say it again, is behaving like God because he is God. And that what's, that's what makes him different from every other leader of a world religion. Because the call to follow Jesus always gets to the point of full worship. He alone is asking for full worship. Why? Because he alone is God. And that's why, point three, he offers, it's a radical call to follow Jesus. You know, following Jesus means everything is turned upside down. It's a shift in your priorities. It's taking Jesus' view of the world and making them your view of the world. What Jesus thinks of the Bible is what you want to think of the Bible. What Jesus thinks about God is what you want to think about God. What Jesus says about work, at home, marriage, my life, your life, is exactly what I want to think. Jesus calls on two sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew, Simon, Peter and Andrew, and James and John. And you notice the call to follow them. You know what they do? They leave their nets. They leave their boats. They leave their father. They leave their security. They don't abandon their families. They don't refuse to work. What they're doing is placing Jesus ahead of everything and everyone, which, by the way, ends up making you someone who loves every, everyone. All the more better. I was, it was a, it's a strange paradox to me that in loving Jesus more than my parents, my wife, and my children, I end up loving them all better as a result. And Jesus is saying, I've got to take priority over them all. Listen to what he says in Matthew 8. I find this the most sho- one of the most shocking statements in the Bible. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. Seriously, on any reading, that's fanatical. (laughs) That's supposed to offend. Jesus has a certain way of preaching that gets your attention. You may fall asleep with me, but you'll never fall asleep with him. He's so offensive. I mean, uh, when my uh, uh, our trip to Dubai in May, 
got delayed by two weeks. Why? Because my wife's mother died and we, we delayed for two weeks, then came. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying you're, you're sinning, Ray, when you do that. But what he's tapping into is this. You know that instinct within you that when you hear of your parent dying, you drop everything and go to your home country if you can. Like it's, that, it's that instinct. And he's saying, I want to tap it in, into that instinct and I want to say, following me is even of a higher priority than that. Don't not go, he says, but following me is even more important than that. And there, my friends, is the arrogance of Jesus. Were he not the son of God? He will not allow himself to be second to anyone. You keep him at arm's length, you don't have him at all. I remember talking to my cousin Joe. He was really, he believed that Jesus rose from the dead, but he just couldn't commit until one day, and, and the reason was very simple. He didn't want to upset his father because he knew his father would be furious with him. Anyway, months passed, and he told me he finally decided to follow Jesus. I said, Joe, what was it? He said, I realized one day that I'm going to die, and at the judgment seat, I'm going to stand before the judge of the earth, and it's not going to be my dad. It's going to be Jesus. So I better be following Jesus. I said, Joe, that's, that's very smart of you. And it's, now this is obvious, point four, but it, it's a choice to follow Jesus. It's a decision you have to make. You can have 10 generations of pastors in your family. You still have to make a decision. God has no, as we say, grandchildren. He only has children because you, 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 your parents will influence you to follow Jesus. Absolutely. But they can't make the decision for you. And if you come from a Christianized section of a, of a, of a, of a culture where the culture is defined as being Christian, you particularly need to grasp this that I'm not a Christian because I, I belong to this people group or this family line. I'm a Christian because at some point in God's call, kindness, he called me and I responded to the call. It requires a decision. I didn't wake up on the first morning of my honeymoon and, and say to my wife, how did you pop into bed? You know, She got there because a year earlier I decided to date her get to know her and she me. Six months after that, I made a decision to propose to her. She said yes. After that, we planned to get married. Put a date. Then we made promises before God, before the congregation, and said, I do. That's how she got there. <laughs> it's a decision. And what I love is it's, it's a call for everyone. The call to follow Jesus is for everyone and anyone. Um, it's true, these four men will end up becoming apostles. But for now, they're not being called to be those 12 apostles. They're, now they're being called simply to be disciples. And it's very important to distinguish the difference. Every follower of Jesus is a disciple. I'm looking at hundreds of disciples right now. But only some followers of Jesus are apostles. The 12 who were God's appointed eyewitnesses, who saw the resurrected Jesus, and the Apostle Paul. And they are deemed as the foundation of the church. Some are apostles, but every follower of Jesus is a disciple. Amen? And if it is selective, it's selective in this sense. Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, the so-called righteous, but the sinners. So if you've not come to Jesus, could it, 
you know, often people say, I don't, I'm not good enough, I'm not religious enough, I'm not holy enough, I've got to get my life right before I come. Well, that's not what Jesus says. I mean, those words are so simple. All he says to you is, come follow me. Wow, it's so simple. It's not do this, this, and then follow No, come follow me. Let's enter into a relationship with me on my terms, and then we'll work out the rest. <laughs> and what I love is when Jesus comes... He comes not just to preach in churches and synagogues. He comes into the workplace, into every facet of our life. Here he comes to four men who are working 14-hour shifts with calloused hands, pulling in nets, mending nets, family businesses. And into that world, he says, come follow me. You know, Movement Day uh, on uh, March the 4th. Uh, one of the things about Movement Day is we're gathering it's, it's a platform to gather Christians from different churches that will actually seek to love the city God has placed us in by serving the city that we may reach the city. And where does that happen more than anywhere else? It's in the workplace. And so we've got on the, on the, on the day itself work and faith seminars, so you can think through that. We've got a dinner the night before Movement Day on the Friday night. So Movement Day is on a Saturday, March the 4th. On the Friday night, we've got um, uh, uh, a, uh, a dinner on for business, those in business. And we've got Bob Dole speaking. And he's kind of like a, a Wall Street expert. And well, that's not my world, but I am curious as to see, have us lead us into how what it means to be a Christian in the business world. Uh, on that same day, on that Friday, we've got a healthcare conference. So if you're a doctor, a nurse, a physio, anything to do with the healthcare, that conference is for you. Because in the end, we're trying to think through how we can, shoulder to shoulder with other Christians of other churches, be salt and light into our workplace. Whether you're a nanny or a neurologist, it doesn't matter. We're thinking the same thoughts of how we can be salt and light. And then it's a call to come and not just come and enjoy rest, but to come and serve. Look at verse 19 in full. Let's say together, Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. To Peter and Andrew, to James and John, Jesus says to them, and he says to us, boys and girls, I've got some serious work for you to do. I want you to catch people for Christ. It's not just a call to come, it's a call to come and go. Now, here's a quote from Ray Galea. It's a little joke, I know. <laughs> Making friends for Jesus is part of being a friend of Jesus. It's as simple as that, really. Go and make, to be a follower of Jesus means you go and make disciples of Jesus. Making friends for you. Why don't you say it with me? Making friends for Jesus is part of being a friend of Jesus. Have you ever had that person in your life who you want to tell everyone about? That's how it ought to be with Jesus. But let me tell you how fishing for fish and fishing for Jesus, uh, fishing for people is different. Here's a quote. Now, this is not a quote from me, so you'll probably enjoy it better. The difference between catching people and catching fish is that when you catch fish, they're alive and then die. But when you catch people, they are dead and are brought to life. <laughs> oh, you like that more, don't you? Fair enough. It's a better one. As a follower of Jesus, in one sense right now, as you do in the workplace, you're casting the net to catch people for Christ. Right now I'm casting the net as I introduce you to Jesus for some of you for the first time. 
And, it, and I want to tell you, it's not a net to do you harm, it, it, to trip you up. It's actually a safety net. In fact, it's the only lifeline thrown out by God. Don't swim away from the net. Swim to it, for there you'll meet Jesus. For what we need to understand is we're drowning in a sea of sin and suffering, and we need to be rescued. That's the great privilege of being a follower of Jesus. You get to be part of the work of rescuing others. What a privilege it is. And then notice, many respond to Jesus. Point seven. The king calls and they come. Look at verses 20, 22 and 27. Peter and Andrew left their nets and what? James and John left the boat and their father and? Large crowds from Galilee to Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan. And you notice, actually, the, set, the word I missed out accidentally was that twice we're told that it happened immediately. Immediately, at once, James and John, Peter and Andrew, Simon and Andrew, sorry, Peter and Andrew, James and John, at once they left their nets and followed Jesus. And it's a reminder that Jesus' authority was so obvious that he was worth leaving everything. But what is it that makes such reasonable, responsible men who had businesses and families leave everything, leave their boats, leave their father, leave their security baseline to follow Jesus? It seems so irresponsible. It almost seems stupid. It seems like immature teenagers who are following their teen idol. But Jesus didn't simply come to preach the good news of the kingdom. He came to demonstrate the power of the kingdom. And that's why there are very, very good reasons of following Jesus. When Jesus saw John the Baptist was arrested, he relocated his ministry up north by about 30 kilometers from Nazareth to Capernaum in a place called Galilee of the Nations. It was where the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali were, tribes that no longer existed. Because in this part of Israel, this was, they had experienced the judgment of God first, and now they're experiencing the salvation of God first. Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah when he says this in verse 16. Speaking of Galilee of the nations, he says, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And who is that light? The Lord Jesus Christ as he goes along the Sea of Galilee calling on people like you and me to follow him. 2,000 years have passed, but I'm telling you, we're in exactly the same world, in darkness, in the sh- living in the land of the shadow of death. And when the light dawns, he begins to lift the shroud of sickness and death. You know, every time a person got healed by Jesus, It's as though he's dragging a little bit of the kingdom of heaven wherever he went. Each time a person was restored in their sight, you got a little snapshot of the age to come, a little sneak preview of the kingdom to come. Jesus was demonstrating his power over this broken world and promising a better world to come. We get to follow Jesus through the grave into the age to come. Just just again, tune into the way the light is shining here in verse 23. In verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and it is good news, and healing how many diseases? Every disease and sickness among the people. 
Think about that for a moment. You see, it's with good reason we follow Jesus. Why? Because when they brought the blind to Jesus, they could see. When they brought the deaf to Jesus, they could heal. When they brought people of determination to Jesus, he didn't offer them a a disabled car spot. He offered them something much better, the ability to get up, stand up, and walk. And notice Jesus heals every kind of disease. Matthew is very specific. A little bit later, he just lists the different categories of illnesses, and Jesus had power over every one. And notice that not only every type of sickness was healed, every person who came to him with sickness was healed. And notice that he heals them completely and he heals them immediately, instantly. His success rate was 100%. I just never get, I always kind of am shocked by this, you know, that no one came to Jesus blind and then left blind. His success rate wasn't 20, 30, 50%. He didn't have a strike rate of, you know, a credit, a pass, a distinction. It was 100%. And it wasn't like he was just good at back pains and headaches. It was like blindness. It was broken backs. When Jesus heals, he heals completely. He heals instantly. You know, when Jesus heals, they don't get up, take up their mat and limp out five hours later or five days later. No, no. They, he heals, he heals completely, he heals instantly. Just like when he forgives you, he forgives every type of sin and he, heals, and he forgives it completely. Now, I know we may live an extra 30 years than they did. Our lifespans are longer. But suffering and death still cast a shadow over us as much as they did in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. You know, there are over 100 hospitals in the UAE reminding us that while there's a lot to be thankful for, and when you get to my age, it's another year, another specialist, so I'm really thankful for the medical world. (laughs) But Jesus never stops being relevant. You don't have to live very long in this world to start to begin to see the shadow of death. I remember when I was about seven or eight, I... I grew up in a Roman Catholic home, you know, we were Maltese and, and I was uh, an altar boy. That was kind of, I got, for eight years I would help the priest out. And when a funeral came, I was asked to help. I really didn't mind because the funeral director would give you 20 cents for helping out, so that was a little bit of icing on the cake. Anyway, I, I kind of did quite a few funerals and I kind of knew what was happening. I knew there was a, usually a long brown coffin in the hearse. And, but one day I came, wow. The coffin was only this big. It was white. The father carried it. It was of a little boy, who had, a baby who had died with a hole in their heart, something that probably could have been fixed now but then couldn't be. Now, I'm seven, right? When you're seven, I never thought about me and death. I had no relationship with it. I had, my life was in front of me. But all of a sudden, I met someone whose life had been cut short much younger than me. I always thought death was for old people, like 30-year-olds or 40-year-olds. Like, you know, you just don't think. When you're seven, you know, you're just not... And maybe you're 20 and you're thinking that. But sooner or later, the, sh- the, the shadow will fall in some way. And it fell that day, and it kind of had an impression on me that death and I had a relationship, and one day we were going to meet. 
And then my 10-year-old cousin, Freddie, died. He slipped off the bank of a dam and slipped in and drowned. And then my nephew, Reese died at 17 in a hit-and-run car accident. My best friend, Michael, died at 24. He got murdered in Agra in India. He was poisoned. And then my friend, Shane, died at 42. You know, if you ask me about Shane now, that was in 2010. You ask me about Shane now, I'll still start to cry. I remember soon after he died, I would wake up from sleep, remember that he died, and start crying. I mean, I don't do that now, but I, it was just so... I, that grief probably hit me harder than probably any other. So weary, living in the land of the shadow of death. So longing for one who will right the wrongs and defeat death and finally destroy it. And that one is Jesus, who walked along the edge of the Sea of Galilee and said, come, follow me. Because he would end up walking on that sea and demonstrating that he was God and calming that sea in the middle of a storm and then going to that cross and bearing our sins and then rising on the third day, only with the promise to come back and finally defeat death. That's why we follow Jesus. The one who can peel back the shroud of sickness and death. That's why I follow Jesus. But friends, following Jesus isn't simply a prayer you pray when you're 15. Because anyone who would come after me, says Jesus, must deny themselves daily, take up their cross and follow me. You get that, don't you? Like you've got to get that. It's not like you pray a prayer when you're 15 and kind of that's it. And you go and do your own thing. I remember one time I got to scuba dive. And I'm not a scuba diver, right? in the Great Barrier Reef. The Great Barrier Reef is this, the biggest living organism in the world. It, it runs for over 1,000 kilometres off the east coast of Australia. It is magnificent. It is filled with fish life, coral of so many colours. The colours are more stronger and more diverse, more prettier than even an Indian set of desserts. You know Indian desserts? They've got all those beautiful colours. Well, it's even richer than that. And, uh, and so I don't have a scuba diving license, but I got on the boat to snorkel and they said, you can actually scuba dive, pay a little bit more, you know, get a, have an instructor. I said, I'm going to do it. I've always wanted to have a tank on my back. And so, I, so I, I sit down with the instructor. He sits me down. He walks me through 20 minutes, 30 minutes of instruction. He tells me about how to bl- use the breathing apparatus. Okay, I got it. Then we go down in the water together. And then this world opens up. I tell you, it was the best praise session I've ever had in my life. There was so much to thank God for. You know, and, and, and I'm fairly comfortable in the water. I like to snorkel a fair bit. And so I'm in there and I'm chasing turtles here and I'm swimming through this school of fish and checking out the coral. And it's fantastic. Then after about five minutes, I feel this bump and I turn around. There's this massive shark. <laughs> Only kidding. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> There's my instructor, and he's bumping me. (laughs) What do you want, man? He said, and he pulls out a whiteboard, an underwater whiteboard with an underwater pen, and he says, you must, underline capital letters, follow me. (laughs) Uh, Because, you know, I got in there. I just ditched him, right? I'm just doing my own thing. I got the instructions. That's all I wanted. And I thought, you know... I think many of us can fall into that temptation as a follower of Jesus. Got the instructions. God made it. We broke it. Jesus fixed it. Thank you very much. Give my life to Jesus. Pray the prayer. Then I'll basically do my own thing. (laughs) 
No, no. He doesn't follow us. We follow him. You must follow me. Follow me into your marriage. Follow me into your workplace. Follow me as you ponder the quietness and the imaginations of your heart. Follow me in the way you use your finances. Follow me in the way you treat those who hurt you. Follow me in the way I, I lead you in prayer to the Father. Follow me. You must follow me. You know, the next time Jesus would be in Galilee, not the next time, but the last time he'd be in Galilee, actually, Matthew 28, just before he ascends into heaven after he rose from the dead, he spoke to the disciples and he said this, go and make disciples of all nations. That is, you want to follow me? Then go and make disciples of all nations because I came here to save the world. Teach them to obey everything. Help them to follow me in every part of their life. And friends, I want to say this, that when we think about the next site in September, and we haven't spoken about it too much lately, so I thought I'd mention it. It's the reason why we're starting that next site is because Jesus says, follow me and go fish for people. That's a call for disciples, not just apostles. And so as part of that, right now, think of this. God is already preparing the hearts of people who are going to come to know him through the ministry of that next site. Isn't it amazing? He's actually working in their hearts. So can I ask you now, I don't mean right, like right, right now, but can I ask you to begin, if you haven't already done it, to start to pray. Start to pray for that next site. We're close to picking up which site we're going to land on. Pray for the next site pastor, one who will pastorally watch over that congregation and the ministry there. Start to pray for the funds because it'll be expensive and start to pray for the core group and to consider whether you might actually be part of that core group that will leave the familiarity of two seasons and be part of another site where God will do another wonderful thing as he calls us to make disciples of all nations. You must follow me. And making friends for Jesus is part of being a friend of Jesus. Amen? Amen? Amen indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the kingdom of heaven has come near and your son, the Lord Jesus, is that king. We hear the call, Lord Jesus, to follow you loud and clear. Thank you that it's a personal call, but it is a radical call. And we follow you, Jesus, whatever the cost. Today we pray for those who seek to follow you for the very first time. In this very room and online and in Platinum, right now there are people in their hearts who are seeking to reach out for you and follow you. Uphold them, Lord, we pray. Help them and us to know that making friends for Jesus is part of being a friend of Jesus. And Lord, make, us, make it clear to us or rather, Lord, may you make it clear to us who the next site pastor is, where the next location will be, who the core group will be, which of us here in this very room and online and in Platinum right now will take their place in that next site and that we ourselves will see the call to contribute financially to make this next site possible. 
Most of all, Lord, help us to grasp once and for all that we must follow you. And we thank you, Lord, that as we do that, your love and mercy are following us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the saints said? Amen, Amen indeed.